The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. We all know now what it's like to be part of an organisation that's really firing on all cylinders, where the people there are the ones that create the things that are really valuable, not just to themselves in a good pay packet or a big profit, but actually to the surrounding community. Because so many people now actually really care about what it is they're doing in their job, not just for themselves, but for the wider community. And they want to know that they're working for a company that is doing the right thing, as well as producing the right result for shareholders. That's this week in When the Facts Change, when I wanted to show people how the economy has changed, from being one based on machinery and factories and finding cheap labour, and where the real value was in the machines that were built in those factories to pump out lots of cheap stuff, to sell it for a high price, and then to push down the cost of both the labour and the materials that are going into the factory to make it as efficient as possible. And that was what being in a capitalist organisation was all about, maximising profits by pressing down on wages and shifting the costs of what you were doing off to someone else. Sometimes it would mean pouring the pollution into the river or polluting the air or, or it could mean exploiting people in a different supply chain. And not many people were that concerned about it in the last century because it was the industrialised age. It was about factories and manufacturing. But this century, we're in a new era. We're actually the most important bit of the, the capitalist supply chain is not the capital of the machine or the factory or the hard thing that's been put into the ground. It's actually the people. And the best way to describe it is to talk about two moments in the global economy over the last 100 years, the Kodak moment and the Instagram moment. We all know Kodak is the company that dominated the last century in photography, in cameras, in film, in developing that film into pictures. And for those old old enough like me to remember having to take a roll of film to a chemist and getting it developed and having to pay a big chunk of money for your 20 pictures, it seems like a completely different age. And it was. In 1973, a young guy, Steve Sasson, age 24, was working for the R&D department of Kodak Eastman. And he invented something quite unusual, a digital camera. And at that stage, it looked like a fridge and wasn't something you could carry around your neck. But he developed it into essentially something called a single-lens reflex camera that looked a lot like the chunkiest digital cameras you'd see today. This was by the mid-80s. He took the idea up to his marketing department, to all the executives at Eastman Kodak, who looked at it and said, nice idea, but we're a company that makes cameras, makes film, and makes machines in chemists that process that film. And we make really big profits from that. So we've got factories all over the world. We've got tens of thousands of workers. We've got barrels of chemicals ready to go. 
If we change to becoming a digital camera factory, then that's all we do. We only sell one thing, not three things. That's going to reduce our profits. So we'll keep working on this and won't actually let it see the light of day. That's what happened. Eventually, the patents for digital cameras lapsed and eventually it was taken up by the likes of Epson and Canon and we all know the history of the growth of the digital camera movement, which of course morphed into the way digital cameras are now used in phones, a key part of the phones. The reason why people buy phones these days wasn't always like that. Back in 2009, just in the wake of the global financial crisis, you, you won't believe this, but no one used their phones like that. People actually had digital cameras. And uh, back then, there was a young guy in California. His name was Kevin Systrom. 2009, he just left Google. Back when Google was doing amazing things and it called itself the not evil company that wanted to organise the world's information and seemed like a, a fairly good influence on the world. Uh, but he could see things changing. It was becoming a big company that was doing things he wasn't thrilled with. And he wanted to go out and do something useful on his own. He wanted to make his mark. And he joined up with another young guy, 25-year-old, Mike Krieger, also from Stanford. And over the next couple of years, 2009, 2010, they worked on an app, essentially just a piece of software, that would um, use the camera on his phone back in 2009 to take pictures and upload them to the internet. They weren't quite sure how it was going to work, and they played around a bit, did some coding, um, and eventually came up with something that Kevin called Bourbon, B-U-R. Because he liked bourbon. And uh, they worked away, and eventually they turned it into an app for this newfangled thing called the iPhone App Store. Uh, uploaded it just to see what would happen. Luckily, when he did upload it in 2010, this was just after the launch of the iPhone 4. For those people who don't remember it, I think it's one of those seminal moments in the development of our new global economy. Why? Why not their first iPhone? Well, the iPhone 4 was the first one to really start to use the big data networks that were being built by the telecommunications companies. And it was the first mobile phone to have a front-facing camera, which when everyone saw it, thought, what's the point of that? I mean, I want to take pictures of other people. But Apple had worked out that people wanted to take pictures of themselves. And it turned out this new app, which had been renamed Instagram, was launched at exactly the right time when a lot of the telecommunications companies in America in particular were rolling out subsidised iPhone 4s to use the big data networks they'd built and that they weren't making much money out of during the global financial crisis. And so it meant that people suddenly had these new phones with front-facing cameras and here was this app that allowed them to essentially express themselves, build a social network with this thing called Instagram. And over the next couple of years, uh, Systrom and Krieger and only half a dozen other people built this money machine, or at least this machine for getting people together, something that at that point was clearly very valuable. By the time it was sold in March 2012, there were 13 people working at Instagram. And this was their moment when they were sold to Facebook in March 2012. By then, it had 27 million users and was clearly one of those dominant forces in the smartphone universe and worth an awful lot of money. But remember, only 13 people had built it in this new era when it really didn't matter how many machines you had or how much capital you had to put into a factory. It was all about how smart you were and how committed you were. 
And that's where we are now, where the most valuable tools in the business building kit are actually people. And they don't just turn up. There's not this huge number of them. And as we're finding in the post-COVID world, you need to find the most talented, the most committed people. People who now, it turns out, actually want to know who they're working for. Know that they're not being part of an organisation that is being a bit of a dick, really, for the environment or for fellow workers or for other people in the supply chain or for the planet generally. And so um, companies are starting to realise that if they're going to build value, create things that create billion-dollar assets like Instagram, they're going to have to do it the non-Kodak way. They're going to have to really embrace their own people, make sure that they're looked after, make sure that those people understand the mission and that the mission is a good one. So a lot of companies are starting to understand that if they want to get the right talent and actually appeal to those investors and suppliers who also want to work with people who are doing the right thing, probably a good idea to understand their own businesses in that sense and then make sure someone else outside is accrediting them as a good company. And that's the third moment I want to talk about now, which is the B Corp moment. This week, I talked to the CEO of Kiwi Bank, Steve Yurkovich, about its pathway to becoming a B Corp, why it did it, how it did it, and how it's changing the way the, that Kiwi Bank operates. And I also talked to Tim Jones, who's, uh, in many ways, the um, midwife for B Corps. He helps companies get accredited as a B Corp. And he explains why so many companies are doing, and not just the big ones, but the small ones, including many family companies, smaller SMEs, and explains what it is that works when getting accredited and the benefits of it and why it um, is taking off in, in New Zealand. Why, and not just in New Zealand, all around the world, so many people and companies are starting to demand when they start working for someone or start supplying them or buying their products, demand that that company is not being a bit of a dick, that they're actually caring and doing the right thing by their staff, by their suppliers, by their investors and by their consumers. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey for a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, welcome to When the Facts Change now to Steve Yurkovich, who is the CEO of Kiwi Bank. Steve, great to have you on board. Kia ora, Bernard. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm curious about Kiwi Bank's decision to uh, become a B Corp, which, um, from my reading of it, is the first time a really big organisation in New Zealand has done it and used a tool which is more common in the United States, perhaps, but doesn't have a high profile here. No, it doesn't. I think it's a it's a really fair point that you make that, you know, we've certainly seen companies like Ben & Jerry and Patagonia and, and other companies like that really lead the way in America around the B Corp accreditation. And, um, but, you know, like companies like Allbirds, which I guess, you know, New Zealand influenced, but obviously based in Silicon Valley and on the west coast of America now. So, you know, there is New Zealand companies that are out there doing it. I think there's about 40-odd in New Zealand. Um, but certainly quite big numbers globally. There's something like five, nearly 5,000 companies, I think, in 70 countries. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's huge in, in, in the sense of, like, you know, everywhere's doing it, but, you know, for us it was, a, I think, a really important catalyst for us to try and take things to the next step. 
So could you explain for people who maybe haven't heard of it before, what's different about a B Corp from a normal you know, corporate structure where the main aim is to provide the best return for shareholders? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the, the key thing about a B Corp is it's a form of accreditation that allows you to verify that you're meeting the highest standards and that you've got a, a positive impact in the community. You know, it provides transparency, accountability, it measures your operating model, your business model, your impact for workers, the community, the environment and for customers. So for us, it's a kind of a, a, a in a sense, a sort of a, you know, call it a gold, but perhaps I should call it a green standard for how you are impacting, you know, across all of those stakeholders. And, you know, stakeholders is a pretty fashionable word, but I think the B Corp does a really great job of, of showing that accreditation and verifying it. And then, the you know, the really interesting thing, and perhaps we'll get to this in the conversation, is that, you know, it's not once and done. Once you get B Corp accreditation, they expect the standards to lift to maintain your accreditation. And that's one of the things that, you know, I think if you're an owner or a shareholder, you do need to think about because it's not just, you know, as I say, once and done. It is an, an ongoing mission, which I think it should be, by the way. But it's interesting. And that does bring up some of the, you know, the, you know, the questions that you asked earlier. So who is the referee here? Who decides whether you need a red card or a yellow card? Look, I, I can I can tell you firsthand that the B Corp accreditation is a really thorough process. And, you know, look, if I'm really frank, when we kicked off the B Corp work, there was part of me that was thinking, well, you know, this is a really high standard. Perhaps the first time we have a crack at it, you know, we're going to get some, you know, pointers around the areas that we need to improve and that it's going to be a journey to, you know, to, to use the um, most overused word in business. But actually, as we got into it and the excitement sort of built as we were working through it and we sort of got put through the ringer by um, B Corp, it became clear to us that we're going to be pretty close. Um, and then actually as we moved through it, you know, we ended up doing pretty well at, at 90 points. So pleased with that, but actually, you know, really thorough and, you know, really clear around the sort of standards that they're trying to hold you to. So... I've had, you know, decades of being involved in those sort of business competitions and, you know, local business awards and those sorts of things. And as a banker, one of the things I always said to customers was, you know, look, you're going to get stuff out of it. You know, you'll get ideas. You know, Bernard's going to turn up and give you his perspective on your strategic plan and all those sorts of things so you learn out of it. Um, so I sort of took my own medicine on that one this time um, and went through the process. But, look, I think it's, um, it's really clear that they feel really strongly about keeping their accredited standards high. And they're very, you know, they're very impartial as to, you know, what they'll take on board. You know, very interestingly for me, Bernard, it's very much show me, don't tell me. So if you think about the community volunteering, they want to see photos. They want to see and talk to the people that did the volunteering. You know, so they really are focused on, you know, the potential for greenwashing, the potential for sort of spinning things rather than actually, OK, well, look, show me. You know, Steve said that he was out cleaning drains and doing these things. What does that look like? So tell me what surprised you about where Kiwi Bank was uh, meeting their standards or below the standards. What was the sort of toughest thing? I think um, we had a really balanced result on the accreditation. So there was no real gaps where we, you know, we had a lot of work to do and, you know, mahi to do to catch up. So I think what really did surprise me and in reflection, maybe it shouldn't have, was the amount of diligence that went into the show me, don't tell me. I think the second part probably was working through with the stakeholders around would there be compromises around pursuing a B Corp accreditation for the overall objectives of the business, which is, you know, what any thoughtful governor and owner would think about. You know, for us, 
you know, we've got three, you know, really strong shareholders that have a big impact in the New Zealand community. So, you know, New Zealand Post have been around forever at the heart of the sort of social fabric of, you know, getting things to people. You know, ACC, you know, trying to get you back on your feet, but but with a very long-term investment horizon. And, yet, you know, you spoke the other day to Matt from the Guardians of New Zealand Super, so very long tail in terms of what they're working on. So there probably wasn't going to be a trade-off between our business outcomes and B Corp accreditation, and more so because we do genuinely believe that you can balance profit and purpose. And, you know, profit for a bank's pretty important because in the bad times you need reserves. And also when there's a downturn in the economy or there's a COVID sort of situation, you know, we offered support to 7,500 customers. If you haven't made a profit in the past, you can't do that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, banking and all the financial services have got themselves in trouble when they take more than they give. And if you can get that balance right between what do I give and what do I get, then I think you get long-term support. We know from the investor community, Bernard, that, you know, as you spoke to with Matt and others, like there is a really strong feeling around, hey, what are your credentials in this space? And we know from a couple of large, and I can't name them, but large investors, um, the B Corp accreditation was seen as a real positive and a real signal that we were moving in the right direction. And so, you know, that meant that we were green-listed for their investment, meaning that they would, you know, buy our bonds and do those sorts of things. Do you think it would be possible for a company that has more short-term-focused shareholders, because obviously ACC and NZ Superfund are managing for the longer term? The B Corp way, if you like, seems very much about uh, managing the organisation for the longer term, do you think it would be possible if someone was listed on a stock market where they have to report quarterly and there's some fund managers and uh, investors who say, give me the dividends now, um, would it be possible? I think it would be possible but more difficult. You know, a lot of these companies are not just privately owned companies. You know, they are listed entities that are B Corp companies. So, you know, I think the focus has to be on performance and return on capital and but not at the expense of, you know, the impact on the community, your workers, your customers. But I think you, you do need to convince the market that this long-term play can also deliver, you know, in the, in the shorter term. Um, but perhaps not, you know, daily, weekly, quarterly, but because you are making some bets around, you know, for instance, some of the customers that you might want to support, you are betting that the risk profile of those customers will change because risk is mispriced at the moment. You know, and you often hear, you know, New Zealand Super and others talk about the fact that, you know, if you're lending a company money for 10 years and you think the profile of the business that they're in, say they're a large carbon emitter, is going to change and reprice on them, then actually maybe the pricing and the risk profile is wrong at the moment, but probably won't be wrong next week. But in two, three, five years, when you're still lending the money, are you, are you going to have a stranded asset on your hands? I think in a market that's really starved for talent, you know, New Zealand is locked down, literally, and, you know, the ability to attract people from offshore is, is zero. And, you know, if you're a high-performing person in an organisation, you know, in some of the areas that are really hot, like, you know, cloud or cyber security or customer experience and user experience design, those sorts of areas, you know, it is a very tight market. And so, you know, we are seeing people choose to come to us because of the B Corp accreditation, because we have a strong purpose and purpose pillars, because actually they've got options and they've got choices. And, you know, as long as you sort of, I think my philosophy is as long as you make money not a problem, so, you know, you don't have to be the best paying, but I think you make sure it's not an issue so that you're fair, then that sort of stuff makes a difference. And, you know, at the end of the day, in a business like banking or insurance and lots of other businesses, you know, the products are pretty commoditised. 
it's ultimately about the people that you know work with those products and and you know do stuff for the customer and make a difference. So I think it net attracts talent. I think it net attracts customers and also takes you off the black ball list. So I think you know customers will often shift because they see you doing something that they just don't like. So I think that helps. Um, so I think they're all positives for performance. So I've uh, worked for you know, international listed companies and you've worked also for um, overseas listed companies. How do you think a, being a B Corp might change the decisions you and your staff write down the organisation? How might it change the decisions day to day? Does it mean you might have a a different type of lending policy or would you make decisions differently about who to lend for or what prices or what terms and conditions? Give us a sense of, you know, how it would go right down to the bottom. Yeah, like absolutely in terms of policies. I mean, one of the areas that B Corp gets into is to understand, you know, the meat on the bone in the sense of what are the policies, who will you lend to, what positions are you taking. So, you know, we've got a responsible business banking policy that essentially, in short, says that we won't bank customers who do harm. And, you know, we try to be pretty clear about what that looks like. There's always going to be grey areas. There's always going to be areas where I think the right thing is probably to support customers who are on a, a journey to improving. But, you know, that sort of stance means that you do say no to a bunch of customers. And, you know, some of those customers could rightly argue they're not breaking the law. Uh, they're providing services, you know, say energy is a classic example, that's much needed. But as a business that wants to be be corporate accredited, you know, we're making a choice that we wouldn't support that. And that can be un- uncomfortable in some communities because some of these customers are, you know, really large employers, sometimes multi-generational employers or family members and those sorts of things. And, you know, I got some, you know, I got some pretty fierce emails and letters from customers who saw that as not the right stance. Equally, I got hundreds of letters saying this is absolutely the right stance. So I also believe, you know, when you look around the world, you know, you, you've done a great job in your podcast about talking about ESG and the changing sort of climate of how people want to invest and where they want their money to go. You know, we've seen plenty of things in KiwiSaver that point to me that this is changing and there is literally, a, you know, a big shift towards those things. So I see us as being on the right side of that change. You know, I'm, I've got a, a nearly 16-year-old and nearly 22-year-old girls. You know, they're, it's really clear to me that they do look around, they do research for what companies are doing, those are the customers that we want to be around for 60, 70 years with us. You know, I see huge chunks of New Zealand that are making choices. You know, I think the farming community gets a really hard time in the sense that, you know, they're the largest group of people who have spent the most amount of money trying to implement change and they still get a really tough time. You know, my personal perspective is having worked around that rural industry for a long time is, you know, there is a, the vast, vast majority of people are trying to move in this direction because they recognise that they're going to have problems if they don't and it's good for the long-term value of the business. So I see that as very aligned to B Corp. Give me some examples of how you think it's already changed Kiwi Bank or some new policies or new things you're doing that mean that, you know, this is something maybe you wouldn't have done if you hadn't gone down the B Corp route. Yeah, look, I think um, for customers, uh, they, they some of them would get a no from us, and that's different. Um Many more would say, you know, who am I partnering with and, and what sort of stuff do you believe in? So we can, you know, evidence the B Corp and some of the other policy stuff that we've got. I think if you're thinking about who you want to work for, one of the main attractions is, you know, we're a, quite a big business that's owned by all New Zealanders, the largest New Zealand-owned bank that's owned by, you know, everyone in Aotearoa. 
So, you know, that, that has its own attraction. Add on the fact that actually, okay, you've got a strong purpose, which I think is more and more important for people. And then look at, okay, so what do you really mean? What's the evidence of that? Because lots of people talk about this big vision or, you know, all these things. What are you actually doing? So I think you point to B Corp and say, look, this is how we think we can balance community, workers, return. And then people get in and get a feel for it. And they know that, you know, we're big enough that we can have an impact, but we're small enough that, you know, individuals make a difference. And I think that's the long story short. And I think, you know, people like the idea of the fact that we're not all about just purpose and not commercial and, you know, we're here just to do good versus we can do good and we can get reasonable returns. And I think a lot of people are attracted to that balance. And, you know, we talk a lot about keeping your life in balance. Well, actually, businesses should perhaps do the same. Steve Yurkovich, the CEO of Kiwi Bank. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us on When the Facts Change. Great to be part of it. Thank you. Well, next up, we talk to Tim Jones from Grow Good about what you have to do to become a B Corp. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both the recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply, and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Well, kia ora to Tim Jones from Grow Good, uh, which is a company that, as I described it, Tim, you're a midwife for B Corps. Is that right? <laughs> it's it's one of the well, it's one of the better things I've been described as probably in, in my life. Um, I guess it's a pretty apt description. Yeah, it's one, one of, definitely one of the things I'm uh, spending a lot of my time on currently is helping organisations navigate the B Corp assessment process to to prove and verify the good that they're doing. So yeah, I'll take that. So what does it involve? Someone rocks up and says, hey, I'm interested in this B Corp thing. How do I get the badge? And what do you say? 
Yep. The place to go and have a look at it is the website is called beimpactassessment.net. So anyone can go online from anywhere around the world and look, create a login and start the assessment. And it's completely free to go and start. And, and you can complete the full assessment for free. You only need to pay some money when you want to click for verification and get the certification to, to prove uh, the good that you've that you've done. So the, the B Corp assessment is essentially an initial self-assessment that you take of your business that looks at your business across five different areas. And that's your governance, it's your workers, it's your community impact, your environmental impact, and your customer or business model. So you go through that process of a self-assessment. When you're ready to click submit, you press your, press the submit button. You then typically sit in the queue for quite a few months at the minute because demand in the system is so high uh, globally. Uh, and once you've um, got, got through the queue, uh, you'll be um, assigned um, a standards assessor who is one of the verification team from B-Lab, which is the not-for-profit organization that runs the certification tool globally. Uh, so B-Lab Australia, New Zealand is our, is our regional hub. And then you basically go through between a 90-minute to two-hour assessment call where they will have picked... Typically, you'll answer around about 200 questions on the assessment. And on this verification call, they will pick maybe 30 or so questions that they want to audit you on. And it will be a mixture of, hey, can you just tell me about how you do the thing that you're claiming? And you'll verbally explain, well, we do this, and we do that, and da 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 And they'll go, yep, that's great. I'm happy to verify that. Other questions, they'll say, cool, look, I'm... Uh, they'll ask you for the for the for the like the run through, but then they'll also say, "Look, that's great, but what I'm now going to see need to see is a invoice to prove that you've sent your staff on that training program, or um, a copy of a spreadsheet that outlines the suppliers that you've uh, nominated as being local and independent suppliers, and what have you." So, tell me, what makes good governance for a start? I mean, <laughs> that's a million dollar question, if ever. Um, in terms of the B Corp assessment, um, I guess that the main things it's looking at is who owns the company. Um, highest points awarded under the governance section for uh, worker-owned cooperatives. So if there is shared equity within the company, you're going to get um, higher points. Um, it's mainly the governance pillar is mainly around transparency and accountability. So who owns the business? How easy is it to to find that person? I can never remember the name. Was it Monsec Fonseca or Mossec Fonseca? That whole thing kind of like 10 years ago where, well, yes, this company's got 50 shell companies and it's all owned by one guy in the Bahamas. You know, we, we want to not have that um, as a, in the B Corp community. Um, yeah, and, and I guess transparency and accountability in terms of reporting that your business does. So do you um, publish financial reports as to how your business is going? Um, do you have transparency around your social and environmental impact? Do you make that public? So it's kind of, I guess... Um, just raising the veil on, on your business a little bit more. But also, who own, like, do you have a board of directors? Do you have an advisory board? Those sorts of things. And the environment, does it mean you have to have done all your carbon emissions accounting and, and you know, only drive an electric car? No, not at all. So the, the environment is essentially inputs and outputs. So, um, yeah, how much water usage, uh, you know, what's your water usage? What's your um, power usage? Where do you get your power from? And then it, it also depends, I guess, for, for full transparency. Uh, there is no one assessment. There's about 70 different assessments that you could take depending on your geographic location, the size of your business, and whether you're a service business, a manufacturing business, um, or what have you. So my business is a B Corp. I, it is me in my business currently. I work from a virtual home office um, versus Sinlay, who are also a B Corp, who make quite a lot of milk-based products and have hundreds, if not, I don't know how many employees they've got, but they've got way more than I have. So 
their assessment would be vastly different because they have a manufacturing component and they're shipping stuff globally, whereas I'm a service-based business. But Sinlay would be compared, their score would be directly comparable to, you know, their peer making a similar product. Um, but the smart people behind the scenes, you know, run the algorithms and, and then pair their, I think they got 80.1 uh, year in their first uh, round of certification to my, I think I'm currently on 92.4. So they've been benchmarked against each other relatively I guess it's like relative to the impact and where where the where it's likely that you're going to be not doing so good as a business. So for a small service business, it's going to be my environmental footprint traveling around. Whereas for a business that's manufacturing and shipping milk powder, it's going to be in the manufacturing and, and where that products come from. We've talked to Steve Yurkovich from Kiwi Bank, several thousand staff, um, big organisation, many years old, um, owned essentially by the government, but through some very big pension funds. So quite a, a large moving beast with lots of stakeholders and good reasons for this sort of thing. But I understand you have plenty of uh, people from quite small businesses, family-owned businesses, cooperatives, um, who, you know, the 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 um, requirements or the uh, the incentives will be different. Tell us what sort of reasons those small organisations come to you for. Totally, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons as to why you would want to look at becoming a B Corp. Yeah, whether it's staff attraction, staff retention, uh, proving that you're just doing the good that you claim that you're doing, increasingly supply chains are putting pressure on businesses because, you know, if you've got a, if you have a big B core at the hub of a supply chain, suddenly, you know, that signal gets sent out to the smaller suppliers on the periphery that, hey, look, we're valuing this thing and, and you kind of get points within the B Corp assessment if you have other um, suppliers in your supply chain that meet third party verified standards of um, social and environmental impact. So there's, you yeah, there's, I guess there's lots of reasons as to what's driving it. The first maybe 20 or so B Corps, we're currently sitting somewhere around 42 to 45. The number keeps kind of going up at a fairly regular clip at the minute, so it's hard to actually keep up. The first sort of 20 or so which were all very small businesses who were already doing a lot of this stuff already. And the certification tool was just a mechanism for them to be able to demonstrate and prove the good that they were doing. I'd now say when you look at some of the last B Corps that have just come through, so Kiwi Bank, EcoStore, um, Untouched World, the Co-op Bank, you know, we're getting um, Pathfinder, KiwiSaver. We're getting to a big end of town where they're, it's it's kind of almost becoming, I don't know what, how to sort of frame it. It's, it, it's partly that there is clearly a marketing advantage. Um, you're like, hey, look, there's a lot of green and purpose washing out there, companies claiming that they're doing good and, and all the rest of it. To, to, to get through the B Corp assessment is not for the faint-hearted, but it's, it is achievable. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's kind of right now, it's more about your mindset and intent as to you want to be proving the good that you're doing around some areas of your business. But beyond that, there are demonstrable benefits as to why you might want to look at it. Like I say, talent attraction, retention. We all know that the, you know, the younger generation coming through want to work for companies that can prove that they're doing good um, and, and have that sense of mission and, and contribution. I quite like that points idea. Sounds a, sounds a bit like a, a, a game. Um, 
Is that, is that, and Pokemon has been mentioned to me. Is that right? <laughs> it has. Yeah, so I've, just before we jumped on this podcast, I was working with a client on their B Corp um, journey, and uh, they call me the Pokemon Hunter because essentially the and, and this is why people tend to engage me because the, the assessment it's like you have to take an exam and, and you've never taken this exam before and no one's told you what to revise or you know what the questions are going to be um, whereas I've taken the exam multiple times and I know what most of the answers are so that's why people typically ring me because like we're stuck at 50 points and we just can't get to 80 80 out of 200 points is the threshold you have to meet on the self-assessment and a lot of people go that sounds like that's not even half marks how hard can this thing be most companies who take the assessment for the first time will hit between 40 and 50 points. So it's really, really common that they get to 40 or 50 and then they need some help. So yeah, I've got this one client. Um, she calls me the Pokemon hunter because it's like we're out there trying to, you know, truffle hunt or, or ferret around for these points that might be lurking there. And that's kind of my job is to say, well, look, here's an example from another company. Like, have you done anything similar to this? And they'll go, oh yeah, we had that company that came in and ran that training program six months ago. Cool. Well, that's what this question is about. Oh, okay, cool. Well, let's tick that. Oh, look, now you've got another half a point. Fantastic. Now, <laughs> I've worked for lots of uh, different organizations over my career. And typically, not always, typically, the smaller organizations, particularly the family-owned ones, are a bit more human, I suppose you could call it. <laughs> uh, and not always. Um, but one of the things I'm curious about is why a family-owned company would want to become a B Corp, because they could argue that, you know, they're all about the long term and about being, you know, part of their communities and and knowing that if they're um, being dicks that someone's going to find out <laughs> and, uh, and get them. So how do those sorts of um, organisations, family-owned ones, you know, look at the B Corp process? Yeah. Like I say, I mean, for me, it, it, it's more about the mindset and the intent and the desire to prove that what you're saying you're doing, you're doing. Because it's really easy to think. I guess the other part of it, it's easy to think you're doing good. But the B Corp assessment is a global tool that is consist, constantly and consistently being refined to measure globally, you know, what, what are the things we need to be doing better at? Um, and it's all well and good to sort of make up some impact metrics and, and think, yeah, well, we're going to we're solving this because we do that. But quite often there's what, what you would call the unintended consequences. So it's like, well, we think we're doing good because we're donating, you know, here. Oh, but we hadn't factored in that that money going to this organization actually means it's perpetuating this, which then actually is causing more of a problem over here. So I guess it's that that kind of lens on just have like just look at what you're doing and benchmark the good that you could because this is the big thing like you're right there's a there's a lot of you know what was it 97 percent of new zealand businesses are small businesses uh, and a large majority of them will be that mum and dad operator or that that sort of smaller family business it's take the moment to check on the good that you think you're doing and make sure if it does it does it connect to the global framework of, of what you know the experts are, are, are seeing is where you, we really need to make some changes to make uh, that positive impact Particularly if you're in a um, maybe a successful family-owned company where succession is required or some sort of um, capital freeing event, as we call it, um, that having that sort of um, certification might be useful. Totally, and I think um, I don't. I mean, you might have seen. I think it was back in May. You know, this, this is clearly at the very big end of town, but ANZ. Um, provided the $100 million loan to Kathmandu that was based on environmental social governance, uh, you know, modelling. And that is pretty much centred around them being a B Corp and maintaining their B Corp status. So, you know, the signal is at the big end of town that this certification tool is a thing. The market has moved 
extensively in the last four to five years. And so if you're about to go through that succession plan, it's it's most likely that the kids taking over the business are thinking this way. Um, it's most likely that if there is going to be some kind of handover or request or requirement for investment, if the, you know, if the, the next generation taking over want to expand or take the business in a different direction, increasingly the B Corp certification is going to be recognized as something of value um, for organizations of all size. And uh, what are the things you find are the, the biggest um, hurdles or hiccups that um, can um, make the process difficult or the, the, the hidden gems that give you the most points? <laughs> yeah. um, so the hiccups, I mean, it's interesting because for small companies, the challenge can be it's, if it's just you in the business, which, you know, it took me about 18 months to do my first certification because my business was a startup. I was time poor, had a young daughter. You know, you get to Friday night and you kind of go, I could either go to the pub and have a beer or I could sit down and try and look at that impact assessment. It's, it's you know, it's pretty, I, I'm just going to go to the pub. So small businesses are just sometimes time constrained. Big companies are typically constrained because it's trying to find the right person to answer the right question. So when you get into the Kiwi Bank size, you know, if you've got to start talking about supply chain or, or you know, a Sinlay type size, you, there's a whole team that looks after supply chain. So you've got to try and find the right people to go and ask the right questions to the right, potentially hundreds of suppliers in your supply chain. So that's typically the hard part. I guess that's partly what, what I try and help people with is, is I'm going to sit you down, I'm going to lock you in a room for four hours and make you go through the assessment so that you get it done. Um, in terms of the gems, um, there's quite an interesting one that's just popped up. So it's it's still being fully sort of formalised and finalised. But I guess this is really interesting on the back of, I don't know if you saw Dr. Duncan Webb's post about his members bill in Parliament the other day about, you know, directors having more um, responsibility than just the sort of fiduciary benefits uh, as a, as a uh, maintaining the revenue. Coming into effect pretty soon is going to be this legal requirement for B corporations in New Zealand. So if you want to certify as a B corporation, because there's, a, there's the time lag in, in the in the Q. It's not. It's not here right now. But by the time you certify, it will be a thing. Um, you now get ten points under the governance section for um, basically what you need to do is update your company constitution and put a purpose clause in there to say essentially this company has a purpose that is beyond just making money for the shareholders. And essentially, you have to put a, a, another clause in basically saying, you know, this the company and its directors will at all times consider our actions across all stakeholders, um, as well as, you know, our duty to to uh, run this in a, um, you know, fiduciary safe manner. That's 10 points up for grabs, uh, you know, which is, that's like a, that's a decent uh, load of points. But I think it's really interesting that we've got this signal that, you know, we've got things happening in Parliament. I know that, you know, the um, Institute of Directors were sort of uh, tagged in some of these posts and say, yeah, this is fantastic stuff. So there just seems to be a real shift happening in New Zealand in particular where businesses are recognising that, you know, they have a bigger duty than um, just the shareholders. And I think it's uh, Rose Macario, who's the CEO of Patagonia. You know, she said the B Corp movement is one of the most important of our lifetime, built on the simple fact that business impacts and serves more than just shareholders. It has an equal responsibility to the community and to the planet. And I just think for whatever's happened in the water, whether whether it's COVID has um, prompted this, we're seeing a lot of businesses suddenly tune into this concept and recognise that this is going to be the future of, of business of all sizes. Putting my um, professional sceptics hat on as a, <laughs> as a journalist and seeing, you know, some people playing silly buggers with the whole green green uh, brand, how does B Corp uh, screen out the, the greenwashers? 
I think it's, it's twofold. One, it's not just the pay to play. You know, this isn't. It's not a club that you kind of go. Well, we've paid our annual our annual fee. We're kind of in the club. We get to talk about you know some stuff that we're doing, and we get to go to some conferences and you know talk about purpose and, and impact. You talk to Hamish Reid from Sinla. You know, it took them about two and a half years to find eighty point one points. Like they just snuck in. I think he, he. I'm correct in saying they had a team of about thirty five people, basically. Look, they, they were Pokemon hunting, you know, within the company to work out how to, what policies can we implement? What can we change? And I guess this would be one of the things as well for some of the, some of the companies that maybe aren't fully attuned and aligned to the, to the B Corp framework. There might have to be some heavy lifting and some mahi to do to, you know, rearrange your organization to align with, with the, with the process. So it, it, it's a rigorous assessment that goes into areas of your business that you most likely have not considered thinking about. So there's that. And the, the main criteria, and I think this is the main thing really, is that it's independently verified. You take the self-assessment, but you go through a rigorous verification system where the, the assessment team, they want you to get across the line and they'll be coaching you and suggesting, well, look, if you just did this, then I can give you those points. But equally, they're, they're pretty hard in saying, look, I kind of see what you were trying to do there, but that doesn't meet the criteria. So no, you can't have those points. So can can people get given yellow cards, red cards, you know, yep. stripped of the ability to use the brand? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, there's, I think there's only been a couple of times where it's copped up on my radar where um, employees have basically whistleblown and said, we, we don't think that we're actually meeting or maintaining these standards. And so that, that is a thing. Yeah, it's, it's not for the faint hearted. If, if you're not actually doing it, you know, you, you, you can't fudge your way through it and claim that you're doing a lot of stuff because it will come back to bite you either from internally or and I think this this is why I'm seeing such a rise in interest in it is because people recognize that there is a lot of green and purpose washing out there and they want to go through a rigorous assessment that proves the good that they are actually doing. Tim Jones, the uh, chief Pokemon hunter at Grow grow Good. Uh, Lovely to chat to you here on When the Facts Change. Cheers. See ya. Well, thank you to Steve Yurkovich from Kiwi Bank and to Tim Jones from Grow Good, talking there about B Corps and what it takes to get the right type of people and suppliers and customers these days on a hunt for a mission. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, our weekly podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. And remember, we're a weekly podcast, so you need to subscribe to get us every week. I'm Bernard Hickey. For When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.